Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. We've all got somebody to worry about these days, whether it's our neighbors or our very own family members. And a lot of people want to help out as much as they can. But for people with older, vulnerable family members inside senior home facilities, it can feel really hard to be helpful. And in some cases, it's impossible. I can't go in there. No visitors have been in there for a month outside of care professionals. So I can't, I'm stuck. I can't do anything. In the Bay Area this week, we heard about several outbreaks of COVID-19 in home care facilities. But it's hard to know just how bad it's going to get. And for residents, staff, and families, this not knowing has brought a lot of fear and a lot of stress. I'm Devin Kadiyama. Welcome to the Bay. My dad is uh, 80 years old. His name's Thomas Hirsch. He has always been a kind of grumpy, but very smart person with a kind of dark sense of humor. On his 60th birthday, I called him to ask him how he was doing. And he hates Hallmark, anything Hallmark holiday, we call it. (laughs) He hates any sort of holiday. He hates Easter, all, all of it. He thinks it's commercial, even his birthday. He's like, is any excuse for people to buy things. I asked him how he was doing, and he goes, oh, I'm fine, son, just uh, traveling the long highway to death. And then he stops and bursts out laughing. (laughs) And he has this really loud sort of booming, all-consuming laugh Uh that you, you never forget when you hear it. My name is Jonathan Hirsch, and I run a production company called Neon Hum in Los Angeles, but I was born and raised in San Francisco. My dad was born and raised in Budapest, Hungary. He grew up in the 1940s and the 1950s, which was a particularly tumultuous time. He experienced the Nazi occupation of Hungary and then later the communist occupation, which led to the Hungarian Revolution that he fled from as a 15-year-old boy in the mid-1950s. And then eventually made his way through the sort of well-worn path of Hungarian immigrants into the United States from New York to Cleveland to Los Angeles. He worked for the airlines He tried to sort of eke out a life as a refugee in a way that a lot of Hungarians did. Then in the 1980s, 
um, he got involved in sort of alternative spirituality, um, new age stuff. And it was during that time that he met and fell in love with my mom in San Francisco. And um, they both spent 25 years together, mostly raising me. And where does he live now? He lives in a memory care facility in Marin County, California, called Windchime. He's lived there for maybe six months, just about five months. Is this the first long-term care facility he's been in? It is. It is. Uh, my dad has dementia, and dementia is interesting because in a lot of ways it just looks like old age. Um you know, the way that we think about it. So for many years, there were little characteristics of things that you would be like, oh, Thomas is getting old. He kind of falls asleep at the table. He forgets things. He's a little bit confusing sometimes. Um, but, you know, my dad always prided himself on his intellect. We would read books and talk about them, literature, poetry, philosophy. Um, and so sometimes I think it was easy to sort of confuse Thomas's more high-minded way of speaking with maybe some a level of confusion um, that we didn't quite know until things just got really bad. And things got really bad last year. The police wound up picking him up without his shoes, and he had like a blood pressure monitor cuff on his arm. He was like crawling into somebody's backyard. Huh. And so they brought him home, um, and eventually they, I think, found him again, and he was hospitalized at Marin General. And um, that was sort of the beginning. It was a, a moment when we all realized, or maybe the moment itself triggered um, a level of incapacity that we couldn't, we couldn't get past. So he ended up spending about 100 days at the Veterans Hospital in San Francisco before we eventually were able to find the right place for him, um, which was this facility, which is down the street from their old house. Windchime. Windchime. It was the hardest decision I've ever made, and I had to make it. I'm his only next of kin. When was the first time you started thinking about what the coronavirus could mean for your dad? I think it was Kirkland. Washington. More than 50 people, we are told, connected to this facility are now undergoing testing for the coronavirus. And we're being told that family members and volunteers are being told to stay clear of this site for fear more people could get sick. Pretty early on in the spread of the virus, when the nursing facility in Washington state, where, where the virus first started to spread in a nursing facility like that, that was the moment at which I started to have nightmares about the possibility that a similar thing could happen in my dad's facility. It's hard enough being six hour a six-hour drive from my dad um, and not being able to be there. When he calls me and asks about getting his TV fixed, I have to call three people and hope that somebody's around and can help him and fix it so that he can calm down. I can't just come over there and fix it for him. So, yeah, that was when I started to really get scared. I realized that, you know, this could spread and take over a whole nursing facility of at-risk people really fast, and that there was literally nothing I could do about it. 
And at the time, were you in communication with Windchime, with the facility itself? It was almost weekly that we would receive these snail mail notifications from Windchime of Marin pretty early on when we started to notice, you know, the spread of the virus in the United States, telling us that we know everybody's really concerned about the virus and their loved ones. And just so you know, there have been no cases of COVID-19 in the Windchime facility. So I would receive these notices and I'd be relieved every time I'd see it. I'd be like, okay, another week. Not expecting that there wouldn't be a day when this would happen, but, you know, just relieved that it wasn't now. And then last week I received a phone call from the folks at Windchime of Marin um, telling me that somebody in the facility um, had been infected with the virus. I mean, if ever you've had something happen in your life that you just expected that was going to happen that was really bad, and in that moment you just experienced the totality of your own fear, I think that's how I felt. So, you know, I mean, it's, it's almost kind of akin to the feeling we have probably in the back of many of our minds about loved ones that are going to someday die. You think, oh man, that day is going to come and I don't know how I'm going to feel about that, but I really don't want that day to come. That's how I felt. Ultimately, it's still unclear what happened, but what is clear is that there, there was about a five or six day period in which an individual from that facility um, had been tested for COVID-19, returned to the Windchime facility, and the people there didn't know that this person had been tested, the person who eventually um, tested positive. So there's yeah. this five-day period Jeez. that I can't get out of my head. And I don't know if it's because there were discharge papers that weren't read by Windchime in which they should have known, or if it was the hospital that um, didn't actually write or inform anybody of the COVID test. Whatever the case may be, bottom line, somebody from that facility tested positive for COVID and spent five days in that in, in Windchime around all the other residents in the same hallway of my dad. How is your dad doing now? Um, he's doing okay. You know, for now, I think he's surviving. I called him last night because his TV wasn't working and um, he was calling me over and over. And I asked him how he was doing and he was like, I'm not dead if that's what you're asking. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess he's doing okay. <laughs> <laughs> does he does he know what's going on with the coronavirus in the nursing home or in the in the facility? He doesn't. I mean, in, they they locked everybody into their rooms. Um, nurses that had worked, or you know, care care professionals that had worked on the different floors, are are not moving from floor to floor like they would have in the past. He like got like a little bit delirious one day and kind of sat down for a nap and was out for a couple of hours. And when he woke up and he was like, son, why am I here? Everybody here is just glassy eyed and waiting to die. 
I don't know what to tell somebody when they say something like that to you. Somebody who a moment earlier might have not been able to distinguish between their flip phone and their TV remote control. So, you know, when he is um, grumpy, I'm I, I feel better in a weird way. It's like, oh, my dad's being a jerk right now. He's OK. Good. You know, because it just means he's got a degree of self-composure that he wouldn't have had before. Um, but he's healthy, like, or I should say, he does not have COVID as far as we know. Okay. You, what are you going to do next, especially around your dad? Is it just about making sure he's safe right now? Or, or is there something else you could do? You know, um, there isn't a lot I can do. I can't go in there. There's no visitors. No visitors have been in there for a month outside of care professionals. So I can't, I'm stuck. I can't do anything. Jonathan, thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate it, man. Molly Peterson, you've been covering the impact of COVID-19 on long-term care facilities for KQED. Does Jonathan's story surprise you at all? No, it doesn't. I mean, I've been paying attention to nursing homes and assisted livings for a while now. And one of the things that's so strange about entering this world is everyone knew this was coming. Counties sat everyone down in February and said, uh, here this comes. Here's what you need. Be prepared. Infection controls. Um, you know, watch out for your staffing. People are going to feel isolated. They said all these things would happen. And now they're happening. The only thing that's remotely surprising is how little information we're able to get from within these places. Why is that the case? Well, the conversations that I was talking about in February were really started by counties and county public health departments who do not regulate or oversee these facilities. So they kind of have more of this advise advise and consent kind of role. And remember, we have so many counties in the Bay, they all kind of run their public health departments a little differently, and they all sort of do this a little bit differently. Um but the real problem from the beginning is the things that are the best protections against the spread of a virus when people live in communal living situations are personal protective gear and testing. And those are the two things that are in the shortest supply. People live and work in close quarters. Uh, People, uh, residents will share rooms with other people. Residents may go outside, mm-hmm. particularly in assisted living, where they have access to, to more resources to the outside world and they're more mobile than, say, if you're in uh, a skilled nursing facility and you just came out of surgery, you're not going to be wandering around as much. Um, the other thing is the people who work in these facilities often work in more than one facility. They'll work one place during the day and another place at night or a place during the week and another place on the weekends. And so you have a lot of people moving around a community. If you think about everyone as these particles bouncing off of each other, uh, you know, there's a there's a lot of bouncing. Hmm. Jeez. Do, do you think we know how much COVID-19 has spread in, in care facilities in the Bay Area? Absolutely not. We don't understand. The reason why we don't understand, in part, is because the public health authorities, the counties, uh, confirm cases once the facilities are willing to make them public. I don't exactly understand why this is, because it seems like they could be disclosing this information more readily to the public. 
in Los Angeles, for example, they're disclosing outbreaks in a numbered list on their website. But Bay Area counties are not doing that. They're just confirming individual reports as they come up. And so it's a little bit like trying to catch tiny little fish in a great big ocean to try to understand what's going on, yeah. And so in in Jonathan's case, he says he still doesn't really know how this happened at his dad's facility. Like he doesn't really have the full timeline of how a resident at his dad's facility got COVID. I guess that doesn't surprise you then. No, and I think a lot of this is going to get sorted out over months and months. Something that I think is worth mentioning is that, you know, obviously the entire healthcare industry and the medical industry is litigation and risk averse. And so, you know, facilities, it's got to be on their minds that they're worried about potentially getting sued. There have been other major disasters, not pandemic disasters, but other major disasters where healthcare facilities have gotten in trouble for not doing their jobs right. And of course, that's going to be a concern for them. What do you think the facility's best tools are to make sure that there aren't large outbreaks? I mean, listening to the experts I've talked to, uh, infection controls and uh, personal protective gear. But beyond that, thinking about the way that we operate these facilities and the way that we um, conduct oversight of them. So, you know, we these workers are relatively low-paid workers. And what we're asking people to do right now is the same as when we ask someone to deliver groceries, like via Instacart. We're asking people to risk their lives to take care of other people. How do people working at the care homes feel about what's happening right now? It's really hard to tell because in many cases they've been asked to sign NDAs, particularly as this pandemic has spread. We've, we've heard a little bit about that. In the case of the Alameda County outbreak, the Gateway outbreak that just happened, uh, some husbands of staffers have said that their spouses tested positive uh, for the coronavirus and are being told that they have to go back to work. Alameda County offers different guidance about that than Contra Costa County, but in both cases, it's just guidance. Uh, really, the state has to step in and decide what to happen. And it's it's a real balancing act, um, deciding whether or not people should continue to go to work um, because there's so few care workers to continue to support this. What What is the balancing act? Like, obviously, we're balancing the, the workers going in, their lives and their families' lives uh, in terms of their health. Um, and what's on the other end of that? Yeah, I mean that's I mean that is something that's lost, right? That that workers are making medical choices for themselves as they're also making economic choices for themselves. And in you know further complicating that I think is you know workers who are dedicated to their jobs who've been doing this for a really long time and want to continue to serve if they can. What are, what are your biggest questions uh moving forward that you have? You know, there's a state agency called the um, Department of Aging. They have something called a long-term care ombudsman. They're advocates for uh, families and for patients, for residents of these facilities. And they made the difficult decision to not go into these facilities. Um, The state of California is limiting its visits. They'll still go in when there's complaints and outbreaks. But overall, they're not inspecting right now. They're not doing the kind of normal course of business. So there's not a lot. It's a very opaque place. And I have millions of questions about what's going on inside these places.
The facility where Jonathan's dad still is did get the attention of officials in Marin County. The Marin Independent Journal reports health officials there have considered the cluster of cases at Windchime as an outbreak, and they say they'll continue to monitor the facility. Meanwhile, at least one person inside Windchime has died of COVID-19. Molly wants to hear more of your stories. Do you have a family in a nursing home or other care facility? You can check out the link in our show notes. You can share your experiences so far and help inform Molly's reporting. Molly Peterson is a reporter with KQED Science. You also heard from Jonathan Hirsch, CEO of Neon Hum Media, which makes the podcast Telescope, has stories all about how we're learning to live through this pandemic. You can find a link to Telescope in our show notes as well. The Bay is produced by Erica Cruz Guevara and our editor, Alan Montesilio. We get help each week from Kiana Mogadam. And KQED's leadership is changing just a bit. We've got Vinnie Tong still, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. And now we're happy to welcome Jessica Placek, who is the interim editor of podcasts at KQED, and Eric Aguilar, whose name you may recognize because she is a founding member of the Bay. She's going to be the interim director of podcasts at KQED. She's replacing Julie Kane, who we're going to miss and who we are so grateful to have worked with. She's going to go on and do great things as the senior editor of NPR's Throughline podcast. Best of luck, Julie. We'll miss you. I'm Devin Kadiyama. That's it for The Bay. Talk to you next week. I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.